Welcome to the 18th and final episode of The Toth Zone, a podcast about how an obsession with music gave me a reason to live and also wrecked my life. I'm your host, James Toth. Today we're going to be wrapping some things up and I'm going to be reading some mail and answering a few questions. And hopefully together we'll try to figure out what season two might look like, because right now I have no idea. During the two and a half decades that follow the most recent events chronicled in this podcast, I've managed to intermittently eke out a living playing music, or at least I did before the coronavirus. Along the way, I've realized certain goals that, by some very low metric, might resemble some small degree of success in my chosen field. I've managed to sidestep a lot of the drudgery and tedium of a straight life, despite never having been anything close to famous. I've signed autographs for professors, doctors, filmmakers, politicians, and many other musicians. I'm aware of at least four strangers who have lyrics I have written tattooed on their bodies. My songs have appeared in several films. I've been on television and been recognized by strangers on the street. I've performed alongside Country Music Hall of Famers and famous rock stars. I've been to more countries than I can remember, and I've visited every state in the contiguous United States at least twice, maybe three times. I have, as an international guest, eaten mustard in Dijon, drank Guinness in Dublin, and celebrated my wife's birthday alongside her in a nightclub full of wonderful new friends in Athens, Greece. I signed with a major record label, and I used the money to purchase my first home. Having one of my songs played over the PA at Starbucks didn't mean much to me beyond a temporary spike in my quarterly publishing checks, but it did mean a great deal to my mom, who called me excitedly to tell me she'd heard my song while ordering her latte. Despite not being an actor, I was invited to audition for the lead role in the 2013 Coen Brothers film Inside Lewin Davis. A couple once revealed to me that they fell in love to one of my albums. Another couple danced the first dance at their wedding to a song I wrote. I've seen my face on a billboard in Denmark and heard my music on the radio in a taxi cab in Switzerland. I've met, collaborated with, and in many cases formed close relationships with the majority of my living heroes. I have on countless occasions found myself in surreal, zealot-like situations in which I felt like Tom Hanks and Forrest Gump, superimposed over major historical events, just marveling at my luck. So you could say that music has afforded me many great experiences I probably wouldn't have had otherwise, given my family background and economic status. I've been to the Parthenon, Big Ben, Shroud of Turin, Stonehenge, Brighton to New Haven Cliffs, the Swiss Alps, Gothenburg Cathedral, more cathedrals than I can recall really, Pikes Peak, Angel's Landing, Four Corners, Niagara Falls, Mount Rushmore, the Iowa Salt Flats, the Blarney Stone. I've visited a lot of famous graves, which is sort of a hobby of mine, like I saw James Joyce's grave in Zurich, and I've visited the grave of Sylvia Plath in Hebden Bridge so many times that I'm confident I could navigate myself there wearing a blindfold. I once spent a morning in balmy Barcelona to arrive that same afternoon in snow-covered Helsinki. None of these trips were vacations, and none of them cost me any money. Any one of these places would have been the highlight of any family vacation, places I could have never afforded to go, were it not for my professional life. At some point I began to take such things for granted. One time I actually heard myself say, 
If I have to tour another ancient European fucking cathedral, I think I'm going to scream. You get spoiled. Anyway, I desperately did not want this podcast to be about any of that. And in fact, it was my intention all along to conclude this story right around the time I transitioned into what could be called a professional artist, which I mark as the time I actually began earning a little money by playing music. So why bury the lead? Well, for one thing, it isn't much of a lead. There are hundreds, if not thousands, of stories by people like me who've had teensy-weensy, itsy-bitsy amounts of success or renown, and have lived to tell about the crummy major label system, the debauchery of life on the road, the decline of a once-thriving music industry. The names and places in these stories vary, but the narrative arcs are identical. I've heard too many stories about this, and you probably have too, so the idea of doing a podcast about it didn't appeal to me. The truth is that my particular experience in this realm is not especially novel or unique. I've never been issued a lifetime ban by a hotel chain or airline. I've never met a groupie, at least not a female one. I've never partied on Jimmy Iovine's yacht. I've never even performed on late night television, toured the Far East, toured on a bus, or received a grant or award for my music. And these are all milestones which many of my equally non-famous peers and friends have reached. So in the introduction to this podcast, I mention how music gave me a reason to live, and I hope over the previous episodes I've explained how it did so. I also note that music has also wrecked my life. Well, how so? Let us get into that at last. I've almost always had to supplement my income as a working-class artist with menial and occasionally degrading part-time jobs to support myself, this is because music, with the exception of an ironically not especially joyful period of two or three years, has never exclusively paid my bills. My most enjoyable jobs have been at the seven different record stores where I worked, but I've also been a landscaper, copy editor, truck driver, maximum security prison vending machine servicer, house painter, janitor, roofer, hardwood floor and carpet installer, food delivery driver, bookseller, barista, maitre d', auto parts store lackey, special needs children's aid, drywall hanger, newspaper binder, thrift store clerk, bowling alley bartender, carny, power washer, library circulation desk clerk, candy salesman, ghostwriter, dishwasher, newspaper columnist, music critic, one-hour photo technician, one-hour photo regional repairman, screen printing helper, telemarketer three times, proofreader, and grocery store shelf stalker. I've also put in time as an employee at the Container Store, Borders Books, FedEx, and Taco Bell. I was employed by the same newspaper on three separate occasions as a columnist, telemarketer, and warehouse worker. I've been paid to partake in medical experiments, most recently allowing myself to be injected with Botox over the course of an entire year, and I've been provided remuneration to take part in focus groups, in which I evaluated various flavors of Fruitopia, tested wireless printers, and assessed guitar effects pedals. I joined eBay in its infancy, and continue to sell records both on that site and Discogs. Thus far, I have somehow avoided employment as a waiter, guitar teacher, or tattoo artist, and I've yet to donate plasma or sperm, but I reckon there's still time for those things. For most of my adult life, I've gone without health insurance. I just consulted my checking account, and I currently have $309.60 to my name. 
This is not a unique state of affairs. Because I have no savings, I expect to be working at one of these menial, soul-annihilating part-time jobs until the day I die. Outside of music, I've never earned more than $11 an hour for any job I ever held, which means that music remains, ironically and only relatively speaking, the best-paid job I ever had. When working at these entry-level minimum wage jobs, I'm often asked, like the titular character in Billy Joel's Piano Man, what are you doing here? This is, of course, damnation by faint praise. The implication being that because I might deploy a few SAT words in casual conversation, that I'm somehow slumming or underachieving by toiling at a chain restaurant or on a work crew, and not somewhere more respectable. Anyway, I suspect that answering such a question honestly would only out me as privileged to the ex-con or single mom or other wage worker who isn't fortunate enough to have an opening slot on a Sonic Youth tour-shaped light at the end of their tunnel. The answer is that the jobs I've held, and the jobs I've been drawn to, have all shared in common one very important criterion. They were quittable. Throughout my entire adult life, I've made it a point to never tether myself to anything I could not extract myself from with two weeks' notice. Now, what if an opportunity to tour or record or co-write was to come up? Would I say, Sorry, I'd love to, but the assembly line really needs me? The irony is that the sum of the skills I have learned at these various jobs add up to my being qualified for exactly nothing. With huge gaps on my theoretical resume, I appear on paper an erratic, mercurial nonconformist with a shaky and sporadic job history. Not exactly employer catnip. Oh, you say you were touring between 1996 and 2019, Mr. Tove? Imagine if I'd never really taken to music all those years ago. I might have aspired to more lucrative employment, to something more economically viable. Given my family history and birthright, my destiny was to become a civil servant, possibly work for the phone company or sanitation department, and ultimately be granted a comfortable pension on which I would retire. I was supposed to get married and live in a condominium in the suburbs of New Jersey, Maybe have a few kids, root for the Mets or the Yankees or the Jets or the Giants. Live a life of comfortable, honest anonymity. Which really doesn't sound so terrible. My family members who fit this description seem pretty happy, and few are plagued with the sort of existential woe or mental health issues I recognize in almost all of my artist, writer, and musician friends to some degree. Perhaps I'd have used my ambition to be more successful in an adjacent field, one in which I might have used many of my same talents and interests to become, say, an advertising executive or a writer of Hallmark cards. But this, too, was not my path. Likely due to my upbringing and the values instilled in me by example and through osmosis, a certain guilt about what I've chosen to do with my life has always nagged at me, despite my best efforts to exercise such feelings. The previous two generations of men in my family have saved actual human lives and have on many occasions performed acts of heroism requiring unfathomable amounts of courage. In contrast, I make up songs and ride around in vans wearing a straw hat, with other unwashed people who are also wearing straw hats. I don't make this comparison to be self-deprecating or to undervalue my work, worth, or accomplishments. I hope it's obvious from the episodes in this podcast, but I believe wholeheartedly that artists perform a vital function in society, and the truth is I harbor very few regrets about my role as a member of the so-called creative class. That said, if I ever survive a plane crash and I find myself marooned on an island somewhere alongside a carpenter, a Navy SEAL, and a physician, let's face it, I'm getting eaten. 
Hell, I will volunteer to be eaten. This is something about which I am under no illusions. What about other potential paths? I mean, couldn't I have just been a music-obsessed person who nonetheless carries on a normal life, maintaining a vigorous music-collecting hobby while still functioning in regular society? I know a lot of people who love music as much as I do, but who don't create music. I'm glad these people exist, but I don't understand them. If I can't relate at least in some small way to the creation of something, I'm unable to completely engage with it. I've never understood my friends who love music as much as I do, but have no desire to participate in the act of its creation. Remember episode 7? Do the dream, right? For an artist, everything is grist for the mill. Part of the joy of hearing something new is figuring out how to extract those qualities from it which resonate with you, and then integrating those qualities into your own work and into your own understanding of the world around you. Herman Hesse said, A poet is something you are allowed to be, but not allowed to become. I like that. Any artist, if they're being honest, will tell you that no one chooses to be an artist. Only in the movies do people say, Today is the day I become this. Rather, the path of an artist is the result of many sets of small, unconscious choices made over the course of a lifetime. If you need anecdotal evidence of this, just listen to the previous 17 episodes of this podcast. And yet I'm wary of resorting to the trite cliché that the life of an artist chose me rather than the other way around, because that's not entirely accurate either. I merely followed various specific breadcrumb trails, and tried to not get too discouraged when those trails went cold. Music simply turned me on, and so I remained receptive to its magic. It's never been for me a diversion, or a hobby, or a recreational activity to keep my mind off important things, like the local election, or my credit card bill, or the noise the car is suddenly making. Recorded music handily trumps all of these things. It transcends and makes moot almost all other earthbound concerns. I acknowledge to some degree that the hoarding of physical media can appear materialistic and needlessly acquisitive. To a fetishist, however, an object typically transcends its primary functions and banalities and becomes an oracle. Here's another quote from one of my favorite writers on the subject of music, Christopher C. King. Quote, Rarely do non-collectors see how the collector transcends the yearning for a thing. Many systematic hoarders obtain fullness by grasping the unifying elements that thread through these obscure objects of desire. End quote. I view all of these so-called objects of desire as seances in waiting. Recorded music is the only way I know to travel across space and time, to communicate with ghosts of the past, and leave messages in bottles for people who aren't even born yet. Music provides a link to an otherwise irretrievable past, and remains to bear witness to a future its creators cannot ever possibly live to see. Work lives on. Music lives on. It's immortal. But it has wrecked my life. As is probably apparent by now, my devotion to music has relegated me to a state of suspended adolescence. I exist in a haunted fog of mostly useless trivia. I can no more see myself getting a promotion at some job or buying a new car than I can winning the Super Bowl. Music Siren Song has led me to a life of arrested development, penurity, delusions of grandeur, and unreasonable expectations. There was a really good article on the website Tedium recently by Fahad Sperink called Life After Death Metal. It examines the limited options for people who have, like me, spent their youth touring and are now trying to transition to normalcy now that the music industry is in ruins and no longer a viable way for most people to make a living. 
To be fair, music also continues to whisper secrets that inspire, enthrall, and stimulate me every day. It has allowed me to doggedly pursue what the philosopher Seneca refers to as euthemia, the tranquility that comes from knowing and remaining undistracted from your goals. Music's progressive education continues to persist in increasingly positive ways. A few years ago, I learned that Robert Fripp is an exponent of the Alexander Technique, and I spent weeks reading about its theories and contemplating about how its levels of mindfulness and concentration might serve me as a musician, too. Just last month, I learned that two of my favorite musicians, pianist-composer Nick Berch and touch guitarist Trey Gunn, are practitioners of the martial art known as Aikido, and I've been wondering how I might implement such a holistic discipline into my routine of eating heroic amounts of microwave egg rolls and scouring the internet for French prog records. Music, paradoxically, is a reason to live that wrecks your life. But I've concluded over the course of these episodes that there are far worse ways to wreck your life, and few better reasons to live. In my case, the damage is already done. At this point, the likelihood of my ever becoming a biochemist or commercial airline pilot or even a cable guy is nil. I mean, I'm even too old for the army, for Christ's sakes. Not that I'd ever enlist in the army, but that's a sobering thought. The reasons to get out of bed and live, however, continue. I mean, there are still a few sparks besides I haven't heard. Can you believe that? Thank you for listening. I'd like to thank all of you, whether you checked in from the beginning or just discovered this podcast today. Also to everyone who tweeted or retweeted or shared on social media. If you see any friends or family over the holidays you think would dig the podcast, please spread the word. As of today, we have over 6,000 downloads on Podbean alone, which is pretty astonishing given that the Toth Zone has no corporate sponsorship and has barely been promoted outside of Twitter. I'd like to thank all of my patrons, subscribers, sponsors, and friends who've helped so much to make this podcast happen and offered helpful notes and encouragement along the way. I hope my patrons in particular will kindly stick with me through the lean months while I figure out season two. I'll continue offering exclusive music and mixtapes and discounts and stuff. I'd also like to thank all my Bandcamp supporters as well. I bought all my podcasting equipment with money I made from downloads purchased by you on Bandcamp Fridays, so thanks. It would take an entire episode to acknowledge every individual person who helped, and that episode would be boring and no one would want to listen to it, probably not even the people being thanked. But when this is eventually published in the form of a book, please look for your name in the acknowledgements. That said, there are a handful of people who do warrant special mention, so I'll try to keep this under a minute before we get to the questions. Thank you to Morgan Enos, Ned Netherwood, David Klein, Brenna Elric, Josh Royland, Ringo, Michael Mayer, Paul Levero, Jarvis Tavernier, George, Tanya, Zach, Hyde, and Catherine Reyes. Jerry David DeSica, Owen King, Marty Key, Nick Mitchell Mayato, Ryan Norris, Aaron Rosenblum, Joseph Carver, Andy Stith, Will Burchard, Corey Rayborn, Mike Dixon, William Fowler Collins, Keith Wood, Miles Seaton, Mike Bernstein, Angelo Bonacorsi, Elizabeth Nelson and Tim Bracey, Ben Chasney, Jonathan Hart, aka Ro Jimmy, Tyler Mahan Co., Mark Collins, Josh Doss, J.C. Gable, Eric Kowalski, Scott McDowell, Daryl Norson, Andrew Sutherland, Phil Tomlinson, and Lucas Church. And of course, my brilliant and beautiful wife, Leah, who encouraged me to do this. I hope that was under a minute. <laughs>
I was thinking of maybe putting like a beat under that and doing like, you know, the, the Ice-T song MVPs where he just shouts people out for six minutes. And there's a House of Pain song too at the end of one of the records where they're just kind of like, it, you know, all these, they get all my love. Anyway, all these people get all my love. Thank you very much. The theme music for The Tote Zone has been provided by my good pal and bandmate, Nick Mitchell Maiato, who generously allowed me to use his song Ode to Watt for the theme music. The song is on his recent solo album, Pino Carrasco, which I highly, highly recommend. Now, on to the questions. Keldetta writes, I would enjoy a sister's update in the Q&A if there hasn't been one already. Thanks, Keldetta. My sister Carrie is a teacher and a happily married mother of two. After a few wild years living in Manhattan, she and her family now occupy the second floor of our childhood home, my parents upstairs. The tradition of family nicknames continues with my nephew Binky and my niece Patty Cake. We're all pretty tight. This is something I wouldn't mention if it wasn't so timely, but Carrie just yesterday became a high school graduate at 39 years old. This despite her having a career and having been certified to teach sign language for several years. I guess there was a clerical error after she thought she'd completed high school over the summer of her senior year, and it just came up recently that she never actually earned a degree or had a diploma. But she has both now, as of yesterday, so congratulations, Carrie. Better late than never. The boo is now 33 years old. She works at a greenhouse and has a steady boyfriend. She lives on Staten Island. She's obsessed with Jersey Boys, John Stamos, and Knight Rider. We're also very close. I'm trying to convince her to come on as a guest on season two, so we'll see if she goes for it. Several people asked, whatever happened to Scooter? We aren't in touch, but I believe my mom keeps up with him on Facebook. My mom always really loved Scooter. Last I heard, he was a skydiving instructor living in Arizona. If he's listening, hey Scooter, my old friend John Gould asked about Paul. Well, Paul, as I mentioned in episode 17, I think, which aired after John asked this question, went on to become pretty famous in the world of independent hip-hop. He was definitely on the ground floor of that scene, having worked as an engineer during the heyday of Def Jux, recording classics like Cannibal Ox's Cold Vein, LP's Fun Crusher Plus, and a bunch of Aesop Rock stuff. He now has his own label called Uncommon, and does a popular podcast with Samurai Banana called The Dope Shit Podcast, which I recommend. We still talk all the time, and I still consider him one of my best friends. John Gould also writes, If I'm not mistaken, I believe you referred to Leah claiming you were a bit of a scholar despite you dropping out of high school. Did that happen, or did I imagine it or mishear something? I did indeed drop out of high school, and I got my GED. I went to Purchase College, which was then called SUNY Purchase, and there I started a bunch of bands, uh, ran a performance space, put out my first records, I was alternative director at the radio station, and I wrote music reviews for the college paper. Despite all this activity, I never actually graduated from there either, and I'm still something like 16 credits short of a degree. At some point during my senior year, touring became the only priority for me, and it felt like staying in college was becoming a hindrance. It's never come up in my adult life somehow, but I still plan to get my degree at some point, I guess. My friend Jay of Cream Puff Records writes, What is the worst and or your least favorite Grateful Dead tune? I think the worst and my least favorite are the same song. Money, money. It just seemed beneath them. I don't know. I, I don't skip money, money because it's usually pretty short and they only played it, what, like three or four times. So it's sort of like a novelty to hear it. I think I still rather hear money, money than most Little Red Roosters. But, you know, I'll hear a Little Red Rooster I've never heard and it'll just rule. So, you know, grain of salt. I think the most important rule of being a deadhead is a song set list 
very rarely determines the quality of the performance. Now, some of my favorite shows have uninspiring set lists full of like meh songs, but then you're like, holy shit, Jerry is killing it on this El Paso, you know? That said, I'm not sure I will take you home uh, and Tons of Steel have many redeeming qualities. Uh, I'm not a Brent hater at all for the record, but uh, Samba in the Rain is pretty tough going and uh, I also hate, hate what's become of the baby. That's my answer, what's become of the baby. Nigel asks, what was the trigger, if any, that catapulted a metal, punk, and hip-hop-loving kid towards folk and country? Was there an artist or album that blew you away or was it something that snuck up on you gradually? That's a great question. It snuck up on me gradually at first, and then I went all in. It's important to note that I didn't really grow up with like the negative connotations of country music, so I had no bias against it. Really, the hurdles for me as a kid were Springsteen and Billy Joel, because that's what the biggest assholes in my neighborhood listened to. I love Bruce now, but I couldn't deal with him then. I'd say the interesting country began with Uncle George's Neil Young records, and Neil's country-oriented material. I mean, Neil Young is, without a doubt, the reason I started writing songs. So that was inspirational. And then also the birds, Sweetheart of the Rodeo, Graham Parsons, Gene Clark, little Chris Christopherson. He played me all that stuff. As for my own discoveries, it was an unlikely source. There there were a lot of country songs on the first few Beck albums, and I really love those. I'm thinking of like Rowboat from Stereopathetic Soul Manure and like a good third of One Foot in the Grave. I really love those records. Then in my first or second year in college, the Harry Smith anthology got reissued. And whoa, that was like, that was a big deal. Everyone in my circle just went nuts for those, you know, those, those CDs. And it just seemed like everyone I knew went from listening to like Portishead and My Bloody Valentine to listening to Riley Puckett overnight. Like, me and my friends learned all those songs by heart and we'd play them on campus at various events and stuff. Now, from there, I, when I get into something, I go hard. So for a year or two, I just went full-on folk and country. And then I got really heavy into bluegrass and I was reading and listening to anything Bill Monroe, you know, just crazy about Bill Monroe. But you could say I got into classic country and folk backwards, like via hippies and indie rockers. I actually had the same experience with jazz because when I first heard about free jazz as a former metal kid, you know, of course, I just wanted to hear the most extreme shit. So I've, I sought out things like Dave Burrell's Echo and Zorn's Masada stuff, Interstellar Space, Arthur Doyle. This is all before I listened to Charlie Parker or Lester Young or Louis Armstrong, which is a weird entry point, but I think it doesn't matter how you get there as long as you get there, right? Uh, this next question, I'm too humble to read my old friend Eric's question about my songwriting process, in which he says some very sweet and flattering things. But the gist is he asks how I'm able to write so many songs. I really have no idea because it isn't a process I'm in control of. I've said this many times in interviews and stuff, but I really do feel like a medium, which sounds like hippie shit, but it's totally true. You know, you're, you're a vessel. If you hand me a guitar right now and gave me eight minutes alone in a room, I could write you a song. Would it be a good song? Maybe not. Probably not. But I could write you one. You know, I, I, you have to write a hundred bad or mediocre ones to get a great one. So I just answer the call when it comes. Again, it's impossible to describe this process without sounding new agey, but if you talk to other prolific songwriters, they'll tell you the same thing. Like, the muse is a pest. It just comes. And making a song exist is still really exciting for me. My friend Jay in Toronto says, Of all the artists I've followed over the years, none have been more widely spread across so many different record labels. Would love to know the reasoning behind your decision to release music through so many different avenues. And do you think it has helped or hindered your ability to connect to an audience? Well, 
I tried whenever possible to insert clauses into my contracts with bigger labels that I could be free to record for smaller labels and stuff. I think this is just because this is the world I came from. Like some brand new tape label out of Hamburg, you know, would want to release a lathe cut single or some CDR label in France had some comp they wanted you to, you know, to, to be, contribute to. And I was just sure, you know, why wouldn't you give them something? I've had good relationships with 90% of the labels I've worked with. As you point out, there's been, been a lot of them. You know, I, I count some of the label owners I've worked with as very good friends, like Corey at Three Lobed and Mike at People in a Position to Know, Ned at Wasis Das. In retrospect, it wasn't the diversity of labels that hurt me, but the sheer glut of material I released. Also, the breadth, or some would say inconsistency, of the material. I know as a fan, I find it intimidating when I get into some artist or band, and they have like 6,000 Discogs entries. So I probably spread myself too thin, but in my youthful zeal, I was always happy to work with anyone who wanted to work with me. And since I was producing stuff at such a high rate, there was plenty to go around. So of all the things that have hindered my ability to connect to an audience or be more successful, I don't think recording for a lot of labels is high on the list, but I don't know, maybe it is. I have no idea. It's a good question. Joel writes, when is a song good enough to release the kite string and let it float? This is a great question and an important one. I am notoriously a first thought, best thought kind of guy. I tend to not want to labor over songs or overthink them or, or overthink arrangements. For a detailed breakdown of my feelings on this, uh, check out the first volume of the Toth's Law compilation on my Bandcamp page. Uh, explain a little bit about the process there. I like to work fast because I get bored really easily, and I don't like doing a million takes of a song because I know usually we'll probably end up just using the second or third take. So it's tedious and exhausting to go over them over and over again. I, I always think about that Paul Simon lyric in Homeward Bound where he says, all my words come back to me in shades of mediocrity. And I always thought that was about like performing the same songs every night on tour. Just they become meaningless. And uh, I think that's something that happens. And I've spoken to songwriters who tell me they've been working on a song for weeks or even months. And it's like, what? Dude, put a third verse on that shit and record it. You know, you're using up too much hard drive space in your brain. Sometimes it's hard to realize that a song doesn't want to get written. I mean, that's a hard lesson and it sucks to discover that, but... I'm a believer in finishing every song you start, even if you realize it sucks halfway through. Like I said a few minutes ago, making a song exist is fucking magic, man. It wasn't there, and now it is. Like, like Donovan's Mountain, you know? First, there is a mountain. So what if it's a bad song? It's a bad song that didn't exist before you finished it. Fucking witchcraft, man. So if you want my advice, uh, don't overthink stuff. The stuff you think is great will get the least amount of response and praise. And the stuff you write during the commercial break on Everybody Loves Raymond, that'll be the song someone tells you kept them from committing suicide. So don't assume you're the best judge of your own work. For more on this, uh, I wrote a songwriter tips and tricks article for Lightning Magazine, and uh, quite a few strangers have told me that it really helped them. You can probably Google it. I haven't read it in a while, but I'm sure the advice is still good. Emily asks, how and when did you lose your accent? I'm assuming you mean my Staten Island or New York accent. One of my first favorite authors was Jim Carroll. And one day I heard him do an interview about the Basketball Diaries movie. Uh, and I heard his accent. And he was kind of like, well, you know, uh, Leonardo DiCaprio. You know, I realized this shows my prejudice. But I just thought, here's this really smart guy and he sounds so dumb. Now, these days I really like to hear an authentic New York accent. Uh, but back then I really wanted to shed that part of me. 
So I started listening to news anchors, you know, to try to cultivate what they call the non-regional dialect. Of course, by now I've lived in the South almost as long as I ever lived in New York, and I married a girl from Alabama, and now I've been in Wisconsin for two years, so my accent's just sort of melange. But I still like the idea of people not being able to pinpoint exactly where I'm from uh, due to the baggage I associate with places like Staten Island. But uh, as I said earlier, I, I like Staten Island a lot more now than I did when I was growing up there. Ryan asks, can you still rap? Absolutely, yes, with a caveat. Uh, my good friend Dave Seidel, who played in my band Wooden Wand for several years, he's an in-demand audio engineer, and he, but he makes beats on the side just for fun, and he'll occasionally send me a beat just to test me, to sort of like see if I still got it. And I'll usually record a rhyme on top and send it back. But here's that caveat. My style is firmly locked in hip-hop's past. To a young hip-hop fan now, my, my metaphor, you know, rich battle rhymes, they probably sound as corny as Perry Como or something. Like contemporary hip-hop isn't a style I spend a lot of time listening to, so my hip-hop style is dated. It's like the old man's style. But yes, I can still rhyme. And if any other 40-something, you know, white dude, former rappers want to battle, they know where to find me. My friend Jonathan asks, how did you manage to keep tapes of your earliest bands? All I can say is I guess hoarding has its advantages. Uh, to locate some of the source material I used uh, on the podcast, I had to dive deep into a giant Sterilite bin full of unmarked cassette tapes. Some of them dated back like, like 40 years. And I would listen to as many as I could, but there's still like hours and hours of stuff I haven't found and haven't gotten to. But in general, I tend to hang on to media, and it was really helpful uh, to have this archive of shit to explore when I was conceiving the podcast, it definitely helped jog my memory too. Like uh, those old songs that the party people, like I, I might've remembered a title or two, but there's no way I would have remembered Seattle spitters and stuff. Uh, my memory's terrible. Rob asks, who is your favorite rapper uh, of all time? Ghostface. Uh, and that's it for the specific questions. But some of you have asked me about the possibility of a second season I've had fun doing this, and I'm considering doing a second season, but if I do a second season, I'll probably want to tweak the format a little bit. One idea I had is to make season two about the experiences of others and, you know, have guests and friends on to discuss their own musical rites of passage and obsessions. The early episodes about my family uh, seem to be really popular, so maybe I'll try to get some of the family members on here so they can give their side of the story. As for picking up the story where it leaves off, I'm less inclined to do this on the podcast for various reasons. Um, but if a book version of the podcast materializes, and I hope it does, I'm hoping to expand the text to accommodate some of that stuff about my adult life, touring and recording and all that shit. But I think doing this on the podcast would sort of fly in the face of, of the innocence uh, and naivete I tried to convey in it. I mean, I did a lot of cool shit in my 20s and 30s, but I also did a lot of things I just assumed not broadcast into the internet ether for a million years. Uh, there's also the matter of people's privacy, and the closer the timeline gets to the present, the less qualified I feel broadcasting the experiences that I've shared with other people. They have a right to their own memories and their own version of events, so that gets a little sticky. I guess what I'm saying is I'm not comfortable being as candid about the past 25 years and I'm loath to exploit friendships because the friendships I have are really important to me and something I value very much. So doing this sort of thing requires uh, some degree of exhibitionism 
and I don't want to hurt the feelings or reputations of anyone I know by naming names or making judgments or misremembering. Uh, I know my homie Riley Walker is hankering for a freak folk episode. I, I might do that, like do a few slice of life type episodes that won't be chronological, but might explore particular facets of the biz uh, and my experiences. I'm also considering a sort of no format format. Like one week I might have a guest and then another I'll talk about a specific album or artist. Maybe on another I'll tell a few tour stories. But at this point I really don't know. Um, I'm definitely eager to hear your feedback on this though. So please drop me a line uh, at the usual places and let me know what you think. The Patreon page will remain up and will continue to be a place to learn about my various projects, musical and otherwise. There's a lot of stuff cooking uh, for 2021 despite the fierce resistance of the coronavirus and, and the state of the world, you can find me on Twitter at Jimmy Jack Toth and on Patreon at patreon.com slash the Toth Zone. Once again, thank you for listening and for spending your valuable time here in the zone with me. Uh, I wish you all happy holidays and a happy new year. Here's to a much better year than this one's been. Uh, for now... This is James Toth signing off from the Toth Zone.